Thank you, everyone, for joining today's Uranium Market Update Space is sponsored by Anfield Energy. We're joined by the one, the only CEO, uh, Corey Diaz, who brings a wealth of insight into the world of uranium and nuclear power. Corey, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Uh, thanks for having me. Thank you. And we're going to lead with Q&A. Uh, then we'll open up the floor to questions from the audience. So uh, just, you know, keep your we'll, we'll have that question period right at the end. Scott, you want to kick it off? Yeah, sure. So, Corey, I want to start first with the demand outlook for uranium. It definitely looks stronger than it has in decades, really. Could you kind of help everyone understand what the catalyst was for governments around the world, the world to reexamine the role nuclear can play in cutting greenhouse gas emissions? Sure. Uh, you know, it's pretty interesting just looking at the way that, uh, you know, adoption of nuclear has, has come about and it's been fairly rapid over the past couple of years. I think, uh, obviously, a big catalyst uh, more recently was the war in Ukraine. Uh, there are a lot of Western European countries that were dependent upon uh, natural gas supply from Russia. And obviously, the threat of that being cut off um, in any way you know, made a lot of governments revisit the idea of alternative sources of power. I also believe that you know, with renewables not being as uh, efficient as many had hoped, you know, you've got, uh, you know, run rates of kind of 25 to 35%, you know, versus nuclear at around 93% uh, in terms of baseload power. Uh, you know, I think that also, that experiment has been, you know, less uh, as successful as, as many had hoped. So I think that, you know, those combinations, certainly the war and the catalyst, um, you know, of Ukraine, you know, has spurred a lot of governments to consider, um, you know, nuclear. But I also, you know, looking at the, the larger picture when it comes to climate change, I think the idea of embracing, you know, zero carbon power is critical. And, and I think a lot of governments have realized that, a lot of countries have realized that. And, you know, one of the largest sources of uh, zero carbon baseload power is nuclear. And so I think that has certainly spurred uh, investment in the sector. So, uh, it's a great time to be involved uh, in the nuclear sector. For sure. Um, in, with, with respect to key indicators uh, that you're watching, uh, for could you tell us, uh, with respect to nuclear, could you tell us what are the indicators that you're looking that we are experiencing a true renaissance here? Well, like I think uh, you've got countries like China. Uh, China is you know, building more reactors than, you know, currently, you know, has more reactors in the pipeline than the rest of the world combined. Uh, you've got China building a storage plant between Kazakhstan and China on the border uh, to store material that it essentially is going to receive from Kazakhstan. And that, you know, that storage is, you know, twice the size of what Kazatomprom could produce in a year. So it just shows you the expectation of what, you know, should be stockpiled for China's nuclear reactors. Uh, you know, and that's another point which is important. A lot of that material that would come out of Kazakhstan over the past few years uh, was flowing west. But, you know, given the change in world dynamics, a lot of that material is starting to flow and will likely flow into China, uh, which means there's fewer pounds moving west. So when we're looking at, you know, the build out of China reactors, uh, we're looking at, you know, Russia taking over some significant properties and mines in uh, Kazakhstan, which the West had hoped to use uh, you know, for its its own uh, needs, uh, you know, certainly it looks like the supply coming from the east is drying up. So when we see that, 
Obviously, that's concerning for utilities in the West, but you know, from our perspective, it's an opportunity for Western producers uh, to step in and bridge that gap um, you know, when it comes to the needs of uh, Western utilities. Corey, are you starting to see buyers start to move away from Russia? Is it still kind of early, but we're seeing indications maybe verbally of that happening? I'm just wondering what yeah, I, you know, there are, there are certainly indications. I mean, there are, you know, I think that there are, there are obviously long-term contracts that are in place already that are still being fulfilled uh, from material coming from the East. Uh, that said, I think that um, there are certainly utilities looking at alternative sources because longer term, they understand that the dynamic has shifted and it's difficult to do business with with Russia. I mean, the reality is, you know, Russia still controls, uh, you know, twenty seven percent of of conversion uh, and about forty percent of enrichment, and uh, supplies about thirteen percent or fourteen percent of uh, annual production when it comes to uranium. So it's tough to wean yourself off of uh, <laughs> Russia. Uh, at the moment, but certainly you've seen other parties who do provide those types of services, conversion and arrangements with Converdine, uh, Urenco, Urano, are all looking to expand capacity uh, in order to make that shift a little bit easier. Uh, but certainly it's going to take some time. It's not something that's going to be done overnight. Uh, you know, the tricky thing is uh, certainly the West has tried to signal uh, to Russia, you know, through legislation, you know, for example, in the US, you know, passing legislation to ban Russian imports. Uh, that at some point, you know, the U.S. will you know, expect to be uh, completely independent of Russian, you know, uh, you know, production or enrichment and conversion. Uh, but, you know, the Russians are, you know, I'm sure they can certainly just turn off the spigot now and say, well, good luck finding material. And by the way, we can tell everything that we, uh, we've been telling you to China. So it is a, it's a bit of a, a little bit of a game here um, taking place between East and West. Uh, and certainly, uh, you know, it's it's fascinating to watch. It's not just about uranium in the ground, but it's the geopolitical overtones um, in the marketplace, which make this uh, a very, very interesting market. Yeah, Corey, you know, I, I was thinking a bit about this, and it's not that dissimilar from the oil market, right? Like, you know, the, the idea that, um, you know, Russian barrels, uh, you know, they've just found their, you know, they're they're reaching the emerging markets arguably at a discount, but the Western world will pay a premium for non-Russian. Like, is that kind of the world we're in where almost like there's a two pricing scenario, almost like ethical, yeah. right? Like you're paying a premium for that ethical. I, I just haven't, I haven't read anything uh, along those lines. Can there be a bifurcated market like that? I just want to, want to think, it, think it out loud because obviously we are clearly seeing that in the oil market. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And this is something that uh, we've kind of talked about for a few years. Um, there'll, there'll certainly be a, Kind of a Western price or a U.S. price versus rest of world price, um, you know, just because of you know security of supply, uh, access to material, uh, you know, obviously geopolitical risk associated with you know, some of the places where you find material. Um, so I think there certainly will be uh, a bifurcated market here, um, with probably premium being placed on uh, U.S. material. Look at what the government did um, in the U.S. when it came to its, you know, its stockpile as reserve. Uh, ended up paying, you know, I think 20 to 25% uh, on average above where the spot price was at the time in order to secure about a million pounds of material. So we can already see 
um, that there's there's certainly a premium to be paid for material which you know, comes from domestic markets versus overseas. So I, yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you. I think there will be uh, a market split in terms of pricing. Corey, you, you brought up an interesting question in your prior comment about Russia. I'm just curious, on the, as you look through the supply chain enrichment versus mining, if Russia were to turn off the spigot, what part is most at risk right now globally uh, from something like that happening, a supply disruption? Uh, it would certainly be enrichment. Uh, you know, Russia provides 40% of enrichment services worldwide. And so if you can't enrich your material, you obviously can't get enough material in place uh, for fabrication and ultimately you know, for material to be put into a reactor. So that is where the biggest risk lies. And that's why, you know, companies like Orano uh, are looking to expand, um, you know, that, that part of the supply chain in order to mitigate, you know, whatever could be potentially lost in Russia. So, uh, yeah, it, that's, it, unfortunately, the way the market has moved over the years is that, you know, Russia has obviously been very smart to consolidate, you know, some of these services, uh, you know, within, uh, its portfolio, um, and that's left the West uh, scrambling a little bit here. But certainly, you know, the West has recognized it. The the enrichers, converters have all recognized that risk, and so uh, you know they're trying to find ways to mitigate that. I mean, that said, you know, prices have still moved significantly on the conversion and enrichment side. I think conversions up. You know, a few years ago it was four dollars. You know, now it's about forty dollars. Um, I think recently we had, you know, I think conversion, sorry, enrichment was probably around, you know, before the war started, about $55, and now it's about $135. So all the pricing along the supply chain has moved. And so it's interesting the way that the market has moved. They're obviously addressing those things, conversion and enrichment first, uh, but haven't paid enough attention to the production side of the market. Because even with conversion and enrichment, you need something to convert and enrich, right? The conversion and enrichment are services, but the product is still something that hasn't been fully addressed in terms of where do we get the supply. That's very helpful, uh, Corey, that you, the, the way you've structured that and understanding that. Now, um, obviously, just turning to, to our own backyard, and uh, big news uh, was uh, Ontario scheduled to build the largest uh, nuclear uh, nuclear reactor in the world. Um, it just you obviously want to get you know your thoughts on it. Is, is this a sign of things to come? For new nuclear in the developed world, obviously a, a big, uh, and I, I don't know if you followed. Doomberg's done some phenomenal work, uh, just looking at uh, the the uh, the story of Ontario and reduced emissions. Uh, there's a great backstory of of uh, of cleaner air in Ontario, and and the, it's been driven by nuclear. Like we we just we may be one of the great bastions of nuclear energy in the world. I agree, notwithstanding the smoke that we were you know, dealing with a few uh, few weeks ago. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, fire, yeah. Uh, forest fire yeah. related, but yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, it is, you know, Ontario has been a, you know, a beacon, especially in Canada, you know, it, it's been a pretty incredible, uh, you know, the commitment, you know, of the of various governments to nuclear, um, you know, and it's, it's interesting because like much of the rest of the world, there was a time when a lot of people were negative on reactors and there's talking about shutting down Bruce, uh, how, you know, they, you know, Bruce reactors and and uh, you know certainly re, you know nuclear was on its you know on its last legs in Ontario for a while but I think just like everywhere else in the world to realize you know the costs associated with uh, alternative sources or with shutting down reactors which provides you know 
uh, zero carbon emissions. Um, you know, I think that the government's very quick to embrace the idea that not only do we need to keep what we have, but we need to expand what we have because uh, it's a critical component uh, to, you know, our, you know, our grid, um, you know, our clean air, our, you know, our climate commitment. So, uh, yeah, it's incredible. And, and, and it's great to see that in our backyard. And certainly we'd love to see that replicated uh, around the world. Uh, and certainly, you know, hopefully, you know, places uh, like the U.S. will continue to embrace nuclear and expand nuclear. And, and, and we know that uh, there have been proposals out for other reactors in the U.S. You know, obviously there's been some reversals like Palisades in, in Michigan, or at least proposals to reverse the shutdown there. Um, you know, but we'd expect to see more of that um, because I think, as I said, the renewable energy uh, experiments is still one which has value, but certainly you know, when it comes to baseload power, I think most markets realize that there's nothing comparable to nuclear. Yeah, it, it just feels like, you know, if I were to have a timeline and, and you know, these type of announcements um, in North America and, and globally, like you'd have this clustering in the last couple of yeah. years, right, where you literally are seeing um, coming back to, uh, you know, uh, an earlier question in terms of like indicators for the true renaissance. Yeah. You wouldn't have seen this kind of political climate uh, in terms of at least in, in terms of uh, the broader population just being totally understanding and open to it. Because, you know, we've seen the failures and I, I think everyone has seen uh, particularly what's happened in Europe yeah. and understanding that, listen, uh, short of, uh, I, I, you know, maybe maybe that's a question as well as a follow through here. I think you see all these great indicators, Ontario particularly, but then you see something like Germany. It's just, it's just, is that, are they just simply the outlier here? <laughs> and so, we, you know, because we're clearly seeing the sh tide shift and for the particular reasons you've said, if you are on board with a cleaner, uh, you know, with a cleaner grid and you understand capacity factors, you understand nuclear is the only real solution for 80% okay. of it. Um, what's, what's Germany missing? Or, or what's the political climate there that that is like not turning over the new chapter? Yeah. Well, like I think you hit the nail on the head. The political climate is what's driving Germany's agenda at the moment. Um, don't forget that Germany has, you know, been uh, has moved closer to Russia over the years and has embraced, um, you know, Russian uh, has depended on Russian you know energy sources for a number of years. So. I think that's been a big, big driver. Obviously, you know, Fukushima played a role in Germany's decision to shut down its reactors. But, you know, France right next door uh, considered it. You know, France was talking about reducing uh, its dependence on nuclear, you know, from 75 percent of uh, energy sources to 50 percent and then reverse that and is looking, considering expanding. But, yeah, you know, Germany is still so tied to, uh, you know, the, the Russian regime, the idea of, of embracing natural gas coming out of Russia, uh, that they can't really get out of their own way. Um, but they're, they're clearly an outlier. I mean, there's no question. Everybody else around them is building. You've got Hungary building, you've got Turkey building, you've got Poland building reactors, uh, you know, and, and Russia's, uh, sorry, uh, Germany is, is stubbornly holding its position, but it's not sustainable. I think, uh, you know, Germany's also tried the, new, the renewable energy uh, plan, you know, putting solar panels on roofs. And I know friends who've made a lot of money, frankly, um, <laughs> you know, through uh, government subsidies, you know, for uh, those types of clean energy or renewable energy 
uh, opportunities. Uh, but ultimately, uh, it is it is uh, it's a it's a geopolitical question. The governments have been have long embraced kind of Russian uh, opportunities and and relationships, and so it's tough for them to kind of just shut shut that down. But I don't think it's one that's going to be long lived. I think uh, you know at the end of the day. Uh, you've got reactors that are there that can be restarted. It doesn't make sense. You know, the, the costs are sunk already. Um, you just need to, you know, refurbish and restart. And so I wouldn't be surprised. It, it may take, you know, it may take another couple of years, but I think ultimately, you know, those reactors come back on. Um, so, yeah. do, do you know what, Corey? I, I was thinking, you know, uh, I was actually explaining this to my son, right? The, the concept of uh, a negawatt. I'm not sure if you've read Amroy Lovins. I always thought his work was really good in terms of, understanding where the real uh you know the cash return on um where do you get the biggest bang for your buck if you want to reduce emissions simple as that yeah. right and i think higher interest rates are actually the biggest benefit to your to nuclear power yeah. right because you, you you know all of this kind of like pie in the sky stuff that enabled your friend to get um you know to get uh you know to get rich off solar yeah. that is not good ROI and that's not no. you know going to reduce emissions no. when you think about it like where you want that money spent is in nuclear where you're going to get the biggest bang for your buck and almost like higher interest rates get you there right and you come back to you know how do you how do you how do you really reduce emissions when you do things like nuclear or give everyone LED light bulbs like if you're going to give away subsidy give them light bulbs don't give them solar right. <laughs> yeah, simple as that absolutely right? it's like it's like you know but we have to think like that but i think the only way you can really think like that is when money's not free yeah yeah i agree and and look i think you know when people complain and say that you know reactors cost a lot of money don't forget that you know there's whole other there's a whole new swath of new technologies which are more cost efficient smaller smrs you know that can be you know put in place in areas where the populations are sparse and you don't you're not requiring you know, a giant, you know, um, you know, gigawatt plant. I mean, it, it's it's something that it you know, can be addressed through you know adjustment. I mean, reactors haven't, you know, technology hasn't changed that much over how many years? Fifty years, sixty years. So, um, but there's new technologies that are coming out that that are certainly, you know, somewhat more efficient and and certainly you know can be used in areas where in the past you wouldn't want to build a giant plant because you're not necessarily going to get the you know, the efficiencies given, you know, given the size of the populace or, or you know, the, the placement of the populace. Uh, but, you know, I think, I think you're right. Um, I think looking at, you know, in a higher interest rate environment, uh, you know, nuclear is something you certainly could embrace because it is a, a long-term investment. You know, we're talking reactors are running for 60 to 80 years now. And you've got countries who are now specifically, uh, which have restricted the the timelines you know um, of reactors running they're increasing them you know through legislation saying you know for japan you know they had a limit of 60 years and they've removed that limit um, so i think everybody not only understands that nuclear is something that you know, should be embraced but certainly you know why are we going to try and uh reinvent the wheel here let's keep these things running as long as we can and as efficiently as possible so it's a um you know it, it's an interesting market not just when it comes to new bills, but certainly the ones that are there today and the expansion potential um, in terms of, or the extensions in terms of lifelines for, for these properties. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, Scott. I, I was going to add just one point, but you know, the higher the cost of capital, the higher interest rates, 
you know, the less, uh, you know, the less uh, prone you are to, you know, doing yeah. things that are completely uneconomic. Correct. And nuclear is completely economic. So there go. Yeah. If you still want a cleaner world and we have higher interest rates, I think that's a beautiful environment for, for yeah. nuclear. Not for equities, but yes. Hey, hey, Corey, I wanted to expand on the SMR uh, topic for everyone listening who doesn't know small modular reactors. Yeah. Based on everything you've seen and are reading about, you think, are, are they really ready for prime time? Is it really just um, figuring out the technology, how it scales commercially? That's, that's dr- driving the timelines to when those first SMRs in Canada and other places will start up? Or does there still need to be some technology breakthroughs to really make it right? I think that there are probably some that are, are ready. Um, you know, so when I say ready, I'm talking about the next five years. So, uh, you know, you won't see any SMRs coming along tomorrow. Um, but certainly... That's a blink of an eye for nuclear. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, you know, so I think that they're certainly ready and available. And, you know, the more interest there is in the technology, the more, uh, you know, advancements are accelerated, you know, frankly. You know, you've got more hands going, you've got competition when it comes to building SMRs, you know, so the breakthrough is going to come even more quickly. Um, but certainly I think there's enough there to show that there is viability. And so, um, you know, and, and those places where, they're most likely to be used, you know, those, uh, those countries, you know, have, you know, an interest and certainly are getting involved in, in pushing that technology forward because of their interests. So I think it's, you know, I think these are real. And I think these are something that are you know, certainly, you know, will complement what uh, the larger reactors, you know, do and offer. So, um, you know, I think I'm, I think the market's pretty bullish on it. I'm, I'm quite bullish on it, too. Is, could it really revolutionize how nuclear is used? I mean, an industrial complex using its own nuclear reactor. We don't have to have these big, massive complexes out in the middle of nowhere because of uh, NIMBYism, things like that. Like, that sounds like a game changer if it went that Absolutely. way. Is that possible? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and as I mentioned, remote populations may not require, you know, large reactors. You can have smaller reactors, whether it's, you know, an industrial complex or, you know, a, a more remote area, you know, you know maybe um, a, a native reserve. Uh, you know, there, there are so many different options here that could potentially be, um, you know, these technologies could be applied to uh, that we think it's, uh, it's pretty exciting. And, you know, it's always good when uh, new technologies enter a market because that obviously allows you to revisit the old technology and see if there's ways to improve efficiencies in those old technologies. So um, it's not just about... SMRs and isolations, but certainly, you know, what learnings can you take from those SMR advancements and apply them to larger reactors? Uh, happy to have Tracy here. Tracy, how are you? I, I just saw you, you had your hand up. Yeah, I just had, I had a couple of questions. Well, well, first, I would ask Corey, can you talk a little bit about like energy density? Because if people don't really understand this market, they probably don't understand the energy density of nuclear and then the, the the side question the my personal question would be um do you think we could use smr technology for as far as shipping is concerned do you see a future in that uh yeah well let me start with the second question um in terms of i mean there are nuclear you know run ships at the moment um and so it's possible uh i don't know if, you know i think smr's 
primarily today are being considered, you know, on land technologies as opposed to and shipping. Uh, but certainly I don't think that that necessarily restricts the opportunity when it comes to SMRs. They could potentially be embraced by, uh, you know, maritime industries. Uh, but I don't know if that's something that's being considered today. I know there's been talk about it. Uh, I've seen a few articles where they've, they've talked about, you know, could we be moving to all nuclear fleets when it comes to shipping in terms of, you know, trying to avoid, uh, you know, the cost of alternative, uh, you know, source of energy. But uh, I think right now, I think SMRs are, you know, they're, they're wholly focused on those, those areas where it doesn't make sense for large reactors, uh, you know, to be deployed. So, and in terms of energy density, uh, are we, are you, are you talking about, um, the, the footprint of a reactor versus, uh, the outreach of the reactor or just to get, just for me to be, um, clear. Uh, I, I was thinking just in, in general, as far as, you know, I think, you know, nuclear, the energy density of nuclear is there's very little product that makes a lot of energy yeah. instead of uh, something like a wind farm or a solar farm that requires a lot of product to make very little energy. Yeah, yeah I, I agree. I, I mean, I, I, I don't have the figures at the top of my head, but certainly, you know, to build out a solar panel farm of, you know, you know, probably 100 square kilometers, you could, you know, one reactor, you know, with a footprint of something less than a kilometer would probably be the equivalent um, in terms of the amount of energy that would be provided by each. Um, but once again, you know, even with a solar panel, you know, farm of 100 square kilometers, you're not getting, um, you know, the efficiency isn't there in terms of, you know, how, uh, how, efficiently does that run? You know, the solar panels, we're talking 25 to 35%, you know, uptime versus 93% for nuclear. So it's, uh, so not only is the footprint a lot smaller for nuclear versus, you know, renewable technologies, wind, solar, um, but the efficiency uh, is well above anything that you would ever get from uh, wind or solar. And that's why wind and solar, you know, the, the important technology breakthroughs related to wind and solar will be uh, battery storage, um, because you'll have to find a way to uh, you know, store some of the energy when wind's not blowing or the, the you know the sun's not shining, uh, in order to find a way to kind of you know create a pseudo base load power opportunity. Uh, but we're not there yet, and so I think that uh, there's a lot of work still to be done on the renewable energy side. But uh, obviously, the opportunity on the nuclear side is uh, pretty clear, and uh, a lot of governments. I've taken a look at that risk reward um, opportunity and, and have you know decided to lean into nuclear. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks, Tracy. Um, now, w with respect to uh, U.S. production, uh, uranium has uh, of uranium fuel. It's, it's fallen to decade lows. Um, is reshoring of uranium production driven by tensions in Ukraine the real opportunity investors should be watching? Well, certainly that's played a role as into a catalyst. But I think, uh, you know, I think what we have to look at is what's happening with Kazakhstan. The Kazakhstan has been providing, you know, was you know, produced 40 percent of what was produced uh, over the past few years. You know, it was the largest producer uh, in the world. Um, and certainly a lot of those pounds are flowing and probably at least 25% of those pounds are flowing to North America. Um, so, 
I think it's important to, to note that if Kazakhstan is now going to sell, you know, the vast majority of its material to China, uh, that means there's less going west. Um, and certainly, uh, as I mentioned, Russia, uh, you know, because Russia um, decided to acquire some mines in Kazakhstan, and obviously there's a backstory there, uh, Rosatom, which is the state-owned agency, um, energy agency in Russia, um, I'm familiar with Ross Adam because we acquired assets from Ross Adam uh, as part of uh, our Uranium One transaction, you know, probably eight years ago. So we're familiar with Ross Adam. But uh, you know, Ross Adam, uh, through its Uranium One acquisition, got access to mines in Kazakhstan. Uh, the West was trying to stop uh, Ross Adam from acquiring any more properties in in Kazakhstan, but um, you know. Unfortunately, it's for the West. You know, Russia was successful in acquiring, you know, some pretty significant long-term, you know, uh, rich mines in Kazakhstan. So that's that uh, is also going to restrict the amount of material that's going to be available to uh, the West because Russia owns mines there, and uh, China obviously is buying material, a significant portion of of the output of um, of Kazakhstan, you know, for its own needs. So it's going to be, um, I think those two things are driving a lot of the, uh, the market when it comes to where do we find alternative sources. Obviously, Canada is, you know, got Cameco and is producing significant amounts, but Cameco you know, is also selling to China Nuclear, uh, is also signed a long-term contract with uh, Ukraine. Uh, so there's still material that's within North America today, which is being sold uh, eastward. Uh, so... Domestic uh, needs for utilities are, you know, it, it's a bit more challenging um, because the flow of material that was coming from east to west is, uh, you know, slowly to a trickle. And so uh, that provides North American producers and near producers with the opportunity to uh, try to fill that gap. It's going to be very difficult to fill the gap completely in the near term. Um, so uh, there'll still be some buying coming out of the uh, east, but... Um, as China continues to grow and accelerate its plans, you know, it's going to turn into a much more uh, difficult uh, undertaking. Now, maybe I can move just to pricing for a minute. Uh, so if, if people aren't here or if they want to track uranium contract pricing, <laughs> could you talk about what are the different uranium end products that we need to be aware of? And is pricing mainly spot or is it long-term contract driven? Uh, so... Uh, Pricing in general, uh, the spot price doesn't reflect the overall market. Uh, the spot price, is, it's a very opaque market. I guess that's the first thing to say. It's not open, you know, like you're looking at copper or gold. Uh, the spot price represents a very small portion of the market, and there's not a lot of material in the spot market today. A lot of that's been bought by speculators, you know, traders. You know, you've got spot, you've got Zuri Invest, you've got all these financial players who've come into the market to try to buy material. And prior to that, you had Cameco and other parties going into the spot market to buy material to fulfill contracts. Um, so I think it's a bit more, um, uh, I think when it comes to pricing, the, you know, the other side of that, the contracted side of the market, which is called 80 to 85% of the market, there's no real um, clarity. That's, that's very, very opaque. There are certainly... Uh, you know, there's certainly consultants in the marketplace who provide some information, but to be honest, I think that information isn't isn't um, isn't clear and, and isn't 
um, isn't ideal when it comes to you know where the actual market is. Uh, I was <laughs> looking through some of the numbers and having conversations with uh, that consultant in the past. You know, those contracted numbers don't necessarily reflect where the highest price contracts are signed, uh, or even the average of the contracts that have been signed. So it's more, it seems like this, the consultant actually looks to a kind of cherry pick contracts to say, here's where the long-term price is not, you know, so it could be $50, but there could have been a contract signed at $80, but the, the consultant decides not to include that as part of the average or, you know, part of that, uh, that number. So it's not a true reflection of where the market is. Um, so, you know, it's very difficult to get a, get a beat on where, where the market um, sits unless you're in direct negotiations with uh, a utility or a nuclear buyer um, in order to figure out pricing. But it, it is, uh, that's the one downside of this market that there's no true kind of clear, transparent um, opportunity to look at where the, the term price is. Now, I, I know I've noticed Cameco on their website, they have kind of a spot chart. Is that kind of like probably the best thing that a, a retail investor could look at to kind of track? I think so. I think, you know, looking at, at the spot market, I mean, it's the only real piece of information that one has um, that's you know, truly reflective. But, you know, I think you've also got to pay attention to volumes when it comes to the spot price. The spot price can move, you know, $2 up or down, um, you know, based on very little volume, right? So... Uh, depending on if someone's in the market to buy today and not tomorrow, that can have an effect on the market. But certainly, I think it's important to note that um, where the spot price was back in 2016, 2017, you know, it, it dipped below $20, right, $17, $18, uh, to where we are today, kind of you know, $55, $56. I mean, it's a tripling of price within a few years, right? And back then, there was talk about a lot of surplus in the market. There was a lot of material flowing to the spot market. Um, you know, a lot of, you know, apparently greater supply than demand, um, you know, and, uh, you know, if you've got a tripling of the price, you know, it clearly speaks to where the market is today. Um, clearly, there's a supply deficit. Um, and so the market price keeps going up for uh, parties to find a place where they can transact business. But certainly, I think the price is going to continue to move up because the supply demand gap is not going to shrink anytime soon. There's no secondary supply as there was a few years ago. Uh, the, the megatons to megawatts deal that was between Russia and the US for downgraded, you know, ICBM uh, <laughs> yeah, uranium, you know, that's gone that run for 20 years. That's 20 million pounds coming into the US market every year, you know, for 50 million pounds of demand. So, you know, that's off the table. You know, the underfeeding of Reactor, the underfeeding um, and enrichment, um, where there's excess material that could be sold into the, into the spot market, a secondary supply, that's all gone. Um, in fact, enrichers are going to have to go back to the market and become a buyer, uh, which is also going to put further pressure on uh, the demand side. And certainly, um, you know, there'll be a, a bigger a competition for supply of uranium. So there are there are a number of things um, that are going to have a a a significant effect on on the market, but certainly uh, spot prices is the place to to start. Uh, but don't be surprised to see a little bit of volatility within that market. 
So Corey, um, I'll just uh, just point. I just threw something up in the in the nest of uh, with respect to Tracy's um, uh, energy density, Mm -hmm. and it it just a different way to look at it. One little itty bitty uranium uh, fuel pellet, Uh, (laughs) one ton of coal, 149 gallons of oil, and 17,000 cubic feet of natural gas. Um, And so, so that's uh, a little a little different take. And that was from a video that. uh, Margot did with uh, the one, the only Doomberg. So that, that was uh, that, that's on our on our YouTube. But uh, uh, I have a question for you, Corey. Um, you're a believer in hard rock mining versus in situ. Could you tell us about some of the advantages of hard rock projects? Well, look, I'm I'm a believer in both. I'll start there. Um, you know, the market, the worldwide market is probably split fifty fifty in terms of you know doing one versus the other. Our view is, you know, for hard rock mining, we have a mill already, and I think that's. You know, it's critical that, you know, listeners understand that it's great to have mines, but it, you have to be able to process the material in order to turn it into yellow cake. And there are a lot of mines out there owned by various parties, but, you know, many of those parties have no way to actually process that material. So having a mill or a processing facility is critical when it comes to uh, being in the market, when it comes to engaging with uh, utilities and ultimately signing long-term contracts. Uh, long-term contracts aren't going to be signed uh, by utilities with parties who don't have access to or ownership of a processing facility. So that's where we have an advantage over a number of our peers. There are probably five or six of us who have processing facilities of the you know 50 to 100 uranium companies, uh, you know, really publicly listed uh, on the TSX or the TSXV. Uh, so I think that's an important point. Um, uh, I guess in terms of you know where things should be, um, you know should be going. I think it's I think it's important to look at uh, how uh, hard rock is one is one area where it's fairly straightforward and and it's something that's been done for many years in in many different commodities. And so from our perspective, having the mill it means that the capex that's normally spent up front. Uh, has already been sunk. Uh, we certainly have a refurbishment cost associated with our mill uh, to get it back up and running. It's a mill that was built back in the 80s. But the cost to refurbish the mill is significantly less, and the time frame to get the mill up and running is significantly shorter than having to build a new mill. For example, a new mill of similar size would be you know, roughly 200 to $250 million U.S., uh, and our refurbishment cost is you know, probably uh, you know, 15 to 20% of that, uh, roughly, uh, conservatively. So, uh, and the time frame for us to refurbish is probably about uh, you know, 18 months to two years versus a full build-up you know, concept to construction of you know, roughly seven years. So we certainly have an advantage from that perspective. Uh, so the CapEx for Hard Rock it, it was at the beginning. Um, you know, you've got a higher upfront cost, but the sustaining cost is lower when it comes to mining and running the facility. Uh, on the ISR side, uh, the upfront cost is lower. You've got smaller satellite plants. You've got smaller mines. Um, you're build, basically building these underground wells, you know, into which you shoot fluid, wash the walls, bring the brine out, dry it, and you've got your you essentially have your yellow cake there. So that cost uh, to start a smaller facility, processing facility, is low, but the sustaining cost because you've got smaller mines. And you've got to build out smaller mines, continue creating these well fields. That sustaining capital cost is much higher. So, 
you know, overall, it's probably, you know, at the end of the day, it's probably a wash, assuming that you've got a long pipeline of these potential well fields that you can create on the ISR side. Uh, but certainly the sustaining costs for ISR would be higher than on the hard rock side, you know, with hard rock obviously being more expensive to start. Uh, Corey, maybe uh, I just want to end things off before we uh, ask if there's any questions in the audience, just to tell us a bit more about your company. Can you just tell us about Anfield, uh, kind of your, your key assets and what your long-term goals for the company look like? Sure. So Anfield is a company with all of its assets in the U.S. Uh, obviously, we're, uh, we're making a big bet on the U.S. given, you know, the largest installed basic reactors uh, worldwide and, you know, obviously the shift in the market dynamics related to where pounds are being sold or being acquired from and certainly the opportunity that um, lies within the U.S. for us and uh, those utilities. Uh, our key asset, I was just alluding to, the Shooter and Canyon Mill is one of only three licensed, permitted, and constructed conventional uranium mills in the United States. Uh, one is owned by Rio Tinto, which is on care maintenance. And the second is uh, White Mesa, owned by Energy Fuels, which is the only operating mill at the moment. Uh, we are in the process of determining pricing uh, to move our mill uh, from its current uh, care maintenance status into uh, production status. So the refurbishment costs you know, are being worked on at the moment by an engineering firm that we've hired. Uh, and our aim is to get into production uh, within the next 24 to 30 months. Uh, the mines that we plan to put through the mill as part of our hub-and-spoke production strategy include uh, the Velvetwood mine, which is a mine, uh, a past-producing mine in Utah. And then we've got two mines in Colorado, the Slick Rock mine, which we acquired from Uranium Energy Corporation last year. And, uh, well, actually, I guess those two, so Velvetwood and Slick Rock are the two mines that serve as the spokes to our shootering hub. We do have the West Slope property, which we acquired from Cotter Corporation back in 2018, uh, which would also be another significant source of material for us um, you know, when we build out our hub and spoke strategy. Uh, we just acquired another mine, uh, the Marcus Juan de Foya mine in New Mexico, uh, mine owned by Anchor Energy. Uh, this is a mine that has about 18 million pounds of uh, material available. So it'll be our single largest uranium mine. And our aim is to move that forward to production in order to create an even longer pipeline of production for the company, you know, somewhere between 25 and 30 years. And so our aim here is to create a long-term sustainable production pipeline uh, hub-and-spoke strategy underpinned by the mill. And we'll continue to look for assets which fit into uh, that plan, both primary and secondary assets. We have assets in Arizona and uh, other assets in um, in Utah, which uh, you know aren't near-term opportunities, but certainly ones that can be built out uh, to complement the the nearer-term assets that we have within our portfolio. So, so that's our aim. Our aim is to uh, become one of the next uranium producers in the U.S. You know, we have capacity currently of about a million pounds per year of production. Our aim is to move that, you know, somewhere between two and three million pounds per year of production. And we've got a pipeline of mines and material that could uh, create that long-term uh, pipeline of 20 years plus. 
That's great, Corey. And uh, with respect to timeline, could you just walk me walk me through like how, you know when you see you know, how this all fits in in terms of production and, and the mills starting up? Sure. So we have a an engineering firm right now, Precision Systems Engineering, which is conducting a reactivation plan, uh, putting together a reactivation plan for us. Uh, so that includes you know what needs to be replaced at the mill, what we can keep, the cost to replace those items that need to be replaced. And, uh, you know, the, the timeline within which we can acquire those materials and ultimately put them together uh, to create a, a running, running mill. And so, you know, we expect to see some you know, further news related to that uh, later this year. Uh, we're also engaged with the state of Utah because the mill is in Utah and the license that we have, the radioactive materials license, uh, which is a critical part um, of the mill's existence. There are only four licenses in the U.S. in total. Uh, this, is the, this is the item that drives our ability to uh, operate. And currently, it's on standby status, but with the work that we're doing at the mill uh, in conjunction with the state, once we've got a plan in place and we start to advance it, the, the, uh, the state of Utah will allow us to move that license from its current standby status to operational. And so um, that process is going to take probably about a year uh, back and forth. And then once we've moved the license to operational, um, then we'll be able to construct. And the construction, because it's a, an existing structure, there won't be a lot of uh, new items which will need to be uh, built up. It won't be a comprehensive build, I suppose I should put it that way. But ultimately, uh, replacing you know, older parts um, and making sure that we've been able to order those long lead items and receive them uh, within a reasonable time frame, you know, that construction side probably should take, you know, I'd say, you know, six months. So, so that's why we're looking at that you know, time frame of 18 you know, potentially 24 months. Uh, but, you know, not everything goes in a straight line. So we'd like to kind of keep ourselves flexible with our timeline. Um, so that's where we're looking at that 24 to 30 month time frame. Uh, but certainly, you know, we think we've got the path laid out for uh, getting this mill up and running again. Uh, the state of Utah is very, you know, willing to uh, help us, you know, move the mill forward and ultimately get ready for production. And I think on the mining side, it's important that we're going to have the mines uh, up and ready for production ahead of, you know, the, the mill being ready to accept material because uh, we want to stockpile material, you know, probably three to six months worth of material ahead of the mill restarting. So we'll have um, the opportunity to hit the ground running. So there's a, uh, you know, we've got a pretty comprehensive plan to move forward. Uh, we've got some very good engineering groups uh, with whom we work. Uh, who are putting together all of those uh, mining permits and, uh, you know, I guess on the milling side, getting those, um, all of the plans that are required. So the state requires uh, a comprehensive restart plan um, in, in, I think, about 14 different sections. And we're finishing off the last two sections as we speak. And so we'll have a comprehensive package to provide to the state uh, probably sometime in the fall after which we'll be um, engaging the state to continue uh, refining those plans and ultimately getting the seal of approval from the state. 
Fantastic. Thank you for the for the overview there, Corey, and like a great conversation. Uh, I just want to open up the, the floor. If anyone has any questions, please uh, request to come up. Uh, Corey gave a phenomenal overview of the market. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of moving parts, a lot of like very, it's been a fascinating conversation, no doubt. Um, if, if you get, if you have any questions, please put your hand up. Uh, Dwayne, I don't know if you, if you have a question, I know, uh, Dwayne for Capital 10X, I popped him up. Um, but, uh, Scott, I don't know if you have any follow-up questions. I guess the one thing I just want to clarify is it sounds like it, um, the way I've heard the uranium market explained is it's like a string. And so if one part of the supply chain, you get a demand pull on it, it moves through the other pieces, but that takes time. So I heard you say that the uh, enrichment part of it, there's kind of a pull happening potentially yeah. there. And that'll take time to feed through to the end prices that we can see on Cameco's website. But that process has already started. Is that is that fair to how I'm reading yeah, it? Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. You know, I think, as I said, because of, you know, for example, Russia's dominance um, in the enrichment side of the cycle, so 40%, you know, enrichment goes through Russia. I think they're looking at those, those greatest points of risk um, to address first. And obviously, they'll work their way down from there to conversion and then ultimately to uranium production. Uh, but certainly, yeah, each part is going to, um, you know, have a knock-on effect on on the next part, and so, you know, we're waiting to see that. Uh, it, it's already showing up, obviously, in the spot price, you know, versus uh, a few years ago. But certainly, within the past year, it's up, you know, fourteen, you know, fifteen percent. So, you know, we can see that it's starting to flow through, but certainly, you know, it hasn't been fully realized at this point. But you know, we'd expect to see that fully realized uh, in the coming months. I have a question. So if we're looking at what the U.S. purchases of uranium are, we've got 15% from Canada, 14% from Russia, 35% from Kazakhstan. U.S. is now talking about placing sanctions on Russian uranium, which could lead to secondary sanctions on Kazakhstan since they process a lot of Kazakhstan's Uranium. So, would it not be fair to say that Canada is well placed right now in this in, in this industry to be a major supplier for the U.S.? Absolutely. Uh, you know, Cameco is rubbing its hands in glee with all the all the issues related to Kazakhstan and uh, its relationship with Russia. You know, but I think the Kazakhs are you know they're probably fairly indifferent because they're going to get. Uh, to sell all the material eastward anyway. You know, I think if anyone's sweating right now, it's U.S. utility buyers because they don't know of a way to replace those you know, significant pounds. Because they, don't forget, the, they're not buying from Kazakhstan because they like you know, Kazakhstan. They're buying because that's where the cheapest source of material was. Uh, so Cameco was probably more expensive. Um, so it's ultimately going to come down to, um, you know, if they can't buy from Kazakhstan, they're going to have to pay more money for it. And that'll probably be a significant portion coming out of Cameco. Um, you know, but I think the other part of the equation to, to remember is that this, uh, the uranium price related to the overall cost of running a reactor is somewhere between 5 and 8%. Uh, so it's a fairly small amount. So if they're paying you know, $50 a pound or $100 a pound, it's really not that significant. Um, it's just more about I think at this point, security of supply. So uh, the price that utilities are going to pay is going up. There's no question. 
Um, and I think they're, I think they're slowly coming around to it. There's some buyers who are a bit sharper than others who are on, you know, on the bandwagon already, already, you know, securing supply in the sixties and seventies. Um, but certainly I think that, um, I think that they're going to, they understand that the price is moving up. And so they're going to resign themselves to at some point that cat, you know, cause that problem won't be able to supply that cheap material anymore. And so they're going to have to look elsewhere. And Cameco is certainly going to be the beneficiary. I'll, I'll one final question, Corey. And, and, you know, it's been an interesting year to date where, uh, you know, we've seen Cameco uh, obviously perform, uh, you know, you know be a strong performer this year, but uh, the small caps less so. I just wanted to get, get your thoughts on you know that that price divergence and obviously I just want to talk broad distinction between juniors versus Cameco. It just feels like there's the, maybe you could give give some color on on what's happened in in with respect to the uranium market um, it, it, with respect to the trading securities. Well, you know, I think I think you've got a couple of large players, you know, because Adam Prom and and. Uh, Cameco, uh, which obviously clearly larger than any other players in the sector, um, and you know I think the market once again it's a small market. You range a small market and not well understood. Uh, still, a lot of generalists who look at the market, um, and those who used to look at the market, at least from a you know capital markets perspective, years ago, you know have left. Right, they, you know the last time the market was very strong is back in two thousand six. See things fall apart after Fukushima. So there's a you know kind of a 10 year gap between Fukushima, 10, 12 year gap between now and, and where you know what things happened with Fukushima. Probably you know, things died out in, in 2013 or so, 2014. Um, you know, so it's still a sector that's not particularly well known. And I think uh, you know, Cameco, because not only is it a producer of uranium, but also provides all these other services which touch other markets, you know, in different ways, you know, whether it's in Europe building out reactors or refueling for Ukraine, um, you know, it's clearly the bellwether for the sector. And so um, it's going to get, you know, first money in. Um, but the other juniors um, that don't have, uh, you know, access to current production, I think that's probably a big part of it, too. I think, I think you'll see more money flowing into those names once, you know, uh, you know, once there's proven opportunities for revenue generation, right? I think there's a, you know, is it risk on, risk off? I think, you know, in a small sector where no one's paying a lot of attention, you know, the first guys to get hit when interest rates go up, uh, or if there's any kind of broad market sell-off, you know, uranium guys, um, you know, uranium seems to be sold off pretty pretty quickly, especially on the junior side. So, I mean, it's a frustrating market, right? And, and I don't have all the answers to you know, why we're getting beaten up more than others. But I think, you know, ultimately, I think the more people pay attention to um, what's happening in the sector outside of what Cameco is doing and kind of looking at the next real opportunity, because, you know, is Cameco going to be, a, you know, is it going to triple or, or, or grow a quintuple? I don't know. I mean, that's, yeah. that's, <laughs> that's, a, that's a big question, right? But, but certainly I think the opportunities for the smaller names, um, if you're, not risk averse uh, to get you know that type of return is certainly there, but you've got to dig a little deeper to understand yeah. who's got what and what's the likelihood of those parties you know getting into production, um, you know, and ultimately providing a 
uh, you know, material um, for which revenue or through which revenue is generated. I think that's going to be, you know, that's the next challenge, right? I think we're getting more people into the sector, clearly. Uh, there's more interest. There's all these new funds that are popping up. Uh, so clearly uh, somebody's paying attention. I think that's providing some credibility to the sector, to be frank, with Sprott mm-hmm. and its funds. But um, it's still going to take some time, you know? I think, I think yep. there's, a, you know, there's so many other... Uh, there's so much other noise out there related to other sectors that nobody's going to spend the time today to focus on uranium as such a small sector when they could be looking at other commodities, you know, with which they're much more familiar and comfortable. Um, so, yeah, it, no, it, it, it's what I find these things, these kind of uh, dichotomies fascinating, mm-hmm. right? When you, when you have the bellwether doing like, you know, this is like top you know, in the commodity landscape. Yeah. Cameco is like one of the top performing large caps by a country yeah. mile. Like, you know, you're not finding anything like that. And I find that those kind of uh, disconnects um, resolve. I, and, and the hope is that, you know, we, you know, we've, the hope is that they resolve with the small caps, small mid caps catching yeah. up. But, you know, you get, get like, it's, it's a situation that I find intriguing because generally like, you know, as, as you know, you know, I, you know, falling precious metals, you see the same sort of tango, yeah. right? Where you, you'll see the money flow into the large caps first. Yeah. Um, junior's getting low love, but then you get this parabolic move, yeah. and, and all anyone wants are, are juniors. Yeah. But we're in that interesting spot right now, yeah. where when I'm looking at my screen right now on Bloomberg, I'm seeing a ton of like things things that are in the red, right? Look across the board, and then you have these outliers. But typically, when you see outliers. Uh, at the level of plus 40% year to date or whatever, they tend to be smaller mid cap yeah. names. It could be some sort of like, uh, you know, event driven, whatever, yeah. but this is Canada. Yeah. Yeah. So, so to me, that's super fascinating. Yeah. Um, as someone who's constructive, I know it's been, a, it's, it's been a tougher market for those who, are, who own across the spectrum, but I think at least chemicals price performance is, is, uh, is quite uh, reassuring yeah. for those that, you know, for the, with a longer term view that at least that's my take on, on, you know, the, therein lies the opportunities that disconnect between this large cap and in uranium, it's crazy. Cause it's like, it's not like I have a Chevron, et cetera. I don't have this massive field of tier ones. Yeah. I have Cameco. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> right. <laughs> like you have Cameco, but you know, uh, it, it's just kind of, you see where the, you see where the, uh, you see where the money goes, yeah. right. And it's, it's always, uh, but, uh, but you know, f- fascinating conversation. Obviously, uh, Corey, I can't, uh, can thank you enough for all the great insight. It's always a wealth of uh, wealth of insights and information uh, chatting with you, Tracy. Thank you so much for for joining us. And um, yeah, uh, Margot, Scott, uh, thank you, and uh, everyone enjoy a, a beautiful Friday. Thanks, everyone. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Corey. Thank you, Grizzle. Yes, guys, this is a great not, space. Uh, thank you. And if you're not following everyone, follow follow everyone up here. They're great folk and. Uh, and yeah, thank you so much. Uh, and uh, for a, a, a plug, I want to give a final plug. Uh, that was a phenomenal conversation on natural gas. Uh, uh, we were on Tracy Spaces on Wednesday, and I thought that was just really, really. Uh, it, it was really timely too because we had uh, LNG 2023 happening in in um, in Vancouver at the same time. Um, Margot's done some phenomenal work. Go to go to her feed. Uh, she's done like this video series of six videos 
basically breaking down the the LNG market in every which way. And then if you're if you're hungry for more, listen to the uh, the podcast uh, with uh, the um, sorry the spaces uh, with Tracy and uh, on Wednesday that which was phenomenal. Uh, great insights there. Uh, so yeah, look forward to uh, um, you following. If you, if you missed it, it's, it's on my pin tweets. It's available on YouTube now. You shouldn't oh. have missed it, but if you did miss it, <laughs> it is available. <laughs> yeah, yeah, wonderful. Yeah, no, that, that that was really good, and, and uh, yeah, we'll uh, we'll look look forward to doing this again soon. Uh, Trace, thanks you, uh, Corey, thank you guys. Everyone have a fantastic Friday, a great week weekend. Thanks. Take care. Bye bye. Bye. Bye.